Welcome to the reading of the Courier-Journal for Friday, March 3rd, 2023, which is brought to our Louisville listeners via Louisville Public Media. As a reminder, Radio I is a reading service intended for people who are blind or have other disabilities that make it difficult to read printed material. Your reader for today is Greg Davis. First, let's read the local weather forecast from the WHAS 11 Storm Alert Team. We'll wake up to showers and thunderstorms across Kentuckiana this morning. Storms have the potential to become severe and produce damaging wind gusts around 55 miles per hour. Heavy rain could lead to flooding as well. An isolated tornado also cannot be ruled out. Storms will move out late this afternoon, but the wind will continue to be gusty. High temperatures will be in the 50s and 60s. Today's high, 64, with heavy rain and storms. Tonight, a low of 40, very windy, with low clouds. Saturday, high of 58, with periods of sun, and a low of 38. Sunday, a high of 63, mostly sunny and mild, and a low of 44. Monday, a high of 71, warm with clouds and sun, and a low of 49. Tuesday, high of 64, with light rain possible, and a low of 37. Wednesday, high of 55, with a few clouds and seasonable, and a low of 37. From the Almanac for Louisville through 4 p.m. Thursday, temperature high of 61, low 50. Normal high, 53. Normal low, 35. Record high was 79 in 1887. And a record low was 3 in 1980. Precipitation. 24 hours through 4 p.m. Thursday, 0.12 inches. Month to date, 0.12 inches. Normal month to date, 0.29 inches. Year to date, 8.18 inches, normal year-to-date, 7.09 inches. Pollen count. Low for molds. Air quality yesterday was good and today is good. Sun and moon. Friday, sunrise, 7.13 a.m., Set 6.38 p.m. Moonrise, 2.58 p.m. Set 5.31 a.m. Saturday, sunrise, 7.11 a.m. Set 6.39 p.m. Moonrise, 3.58 p.m. Set 6.07 a.m. From the front page, our first article is entitled, Mayor announces investments to aid public safety in city. Moves aim to boost culture and health of LMPD. Article by Billy Coben. Mayor Craig Greenberg announced a series of investments Thursday to improve public safety and the long-term organizational health of Louisville Metro Police including the reinstatement of signing and retention bonuses for recruits. Besides police, 
The bonuses would go to workers at Metro Corrections, Emergency Medical Services, and the city's Emergency Management Agency workers. Pending a vote by Metro Council that was expected later Thursday, these bonuses would be reinstated immediately and run through next year. The bonuses were halted at the end of 2022. The other investments include 1. The purchase of a building by the Metro Police Foundation to serve as the LMPD Wellness Center, where officers and staff can receive physical, spiritual, and mental health support. 2. Using $14 million in federal American Rescue Plan money to expedite the renovation of the new police headquarters in the old AT&T building downtown. The funding is in addition to $13 million directed to the work last year. Completion of the project, which does not yet have a set end date, will put LMPD under one roof for the first time in a generation, according to Greenberg's administration. 3. Creation of a new anonymous narcotics tip line, 502-574-2580. The line would be for citizens to report concerns about drugs in their neighborhoods, the administration said, and the current anonymous line for tips about any crime, 502-574-5673, will remain available. Louisville wants a safer, stronger city with the best trained, trusted, and transparent police department in the country. Today, I'm announcing sweeping initiatives to do just that, the mayor said at Metro Hall. These will improve the culture and health of our policy force and will also improve the health and safety of our entire city. To those who want to see big changes in Louisville, both officers and advocates alike, I want you to know that we hear you and we're moving in a new direction. Greenberg, a Democrat who took office in January, has pledged to fully fund LMPD, which has been short about 300 officers from its stated full staffing level of 1,300 personnel. Greenberg's predecessor, Mayor Greg Fisher, included $210.5 million for LMPD in the current fiscal year's budget, a boost over the department's roughly $185 million in 2022. The new investment comes as LMPD faces a pending investigation from the U.S. Department of Justice into whether the department, among other things, used unreasonable force, engaged in unconstitutional stops, searches, and seizures, and discriminated against residents based on race. The LMPD Wellness Center on President's Boulevard near Eastern Parkway will feature fitness equipment, recreation space, and locker rooms, The mayor's office said it will open by mid-year and serve as a space that encourages officers to seek mental health assistance they might not otherwise pursue. Interim Police Chief Jackie Gwynne Villaroyal said the new center is a win-win for Louisville and that healthier officers can only help create healthier neighborhoods. The Metro Police Foundation bought the building from the University of Louisville for nearly $1.5 million dollars. LMPD will lease the building for $419,000 a year through 2026 for a total of about $1.6 million. 
The lease payments will come from federal ARP funds, and after 2026, when the ARP money runs out, the lease rate will drop to $1 per year, according to the mayor's office. Major Brian Edlin, who leads LMPD's Performance Division, which is part of the relatively new Accountability and Improvement Bureau, said federal policing reports from the Biden, Trump, and Obama presidential administrations each stressed officer wellness as needing more attention. Edlin said the new wellness-focused resources help break down the stigma of seeking help. It will show the support. It will show the love, Edlin said. It's a whole community that's making this happen. Fast Track HQ Renovations The city bought the downtown AT&T building at 601 West Chestnut Street for $6.8 million in 2021 to house LMPD and some other agencies. The infusion of ARP cash will help fast-track improvements such as a roof replacement, elevator renovation, HVAC upgrades, and electrical needs, Greenberg said, adding these changes can start promptly while the full scope of renovation work is still being designed. LMPD staff have been scattered between different buildings as the city renovates the new headquarters and prepares for the eventual demolition of the old headquarters by 7th and Jefferson Streets. Greenberg said having a new headquarters and centralized police department will go a long way to ensuring transparency, accountability, and improved service to our community. If the full Metro Council approves a slate of ARP-related spending tweaks, then the city will reinstate the public safety signing and retention bonuses immediately and extend the ability to use them with recruits who sign on by December 31, 2024. Greenberg said a total of $4.75 million is available in bonuses. The revised ARP spending schedule, which also relates to initiatives focused on areas like homelessness, allows for half of the bonuses to get paid out upon completion of required training and the other half paid a year later. Reach Billy Coben at bcoben at couriergeneral.com. The next article is entitled, Kentucky Revamps Drag Show Measure. Article by Olivia Krauth. Politics sat in the crowd of a legislative committee hearing Thursday morning, donning a long-sleeved, four-length, glittering light blue gown, teased hair, and a full face of makeup. Ticks, an ironically named drag queen given the situation, called the dress very flattering and glittery. But she didn't think it was particularly sexy, nor is drag itself. The performance itself is not inherently sexual, Tix said. Kentucky legislation that would have placed severe location restrictions on where drag shows can take place has been radically overhauled, now only keeping kids out and performances out of publicly owned spaces. But the new version of Kentucky Senate Bill 115 leaves ticks and other performers open to criminal charges for performing sexually explicit shows in publicly owned spaces or anywhere a child could be. Advocates and opponents, though, are divided over what it means to be explicit. 
Kentucky Senate Bill 115, sponsored by Oldham County Republican Senator Lindsey Titchener, cleared its first legislative hurdle Thursday morning, passing out of the Senate Veterans Military Affairs and Public Protection Committee. The proposal's new version now heads to the full Senate for approval. It does not have any of its three required readings, so it won't be able to receive a Senate vote until at least Tuesday. The bill is at one of at least ten pieces of legislation facing the Kentucky legislature related to the LGBTQ community. Another measure that would ban gender transition services for Kentucky's trans youth, House Bill 470, was expected to be heard later on Thursday. Not all drag shows are sexually explicit, Titchener said, but, referring to a packet of photos and screenshots showing some scantily clad performers making sexually suggested moves, she said some are. Those are the performers she said she wants to keep children away from through this legislation. Under the original proposal, places like strip clubs and sex toy stores would not have been allowed to be within 1,000 feet of a, of a variety of locations, including schools, parks, and anyone's residence. The bill lumped drag shows into the list of adult-focused venues subject to the restrictions. As the Courier-Journal reported, all three of Louisville's nationally recognized drag brunch spots would have been forced to end their performances under the original bill. The new version of the bill focuses solely on adult performances, which are defined as sexually explicit performances involving male or female impersonators. Individual performers cannot perform in publicly owned places or anywhere kids could be. Those who break the rules would be subject to misdemeanors for the first two offenses and felonies after that. Businesses that host performances in front of kids could lose their alcohol licenses or throw their business licenses into question. Events limited to those 18 and older in private venues would be free to continue. Opponents appreciated the bill's changes, but many still had concerns. An ounce of discrimination is the same as an ocean of discrimination, Bob Hellringer, a former Republican lawmaker, said while testifying against the bill. Kate Miller from the ACLU of Kentucky said the legislation is dramatically different than its original form, and the new version addresses many of the group's concerns. Still, Miller said, the ACLU is concerned that the bill could undermine performers' First Amendment rights. A few opponents pointed out the potential impact on businesses. Chris Hartman, who leads the Fairness Campaign, said lawmakers should be thanking drag queens and kings for doing more for businesses than lawmakers have done themselves. Tix started performing as a way to reclaim her life from hate spewed at her for being queer, she said. I wanted a way to fight back, Tix said. I wanted a way to fight the hate and all of the stereotypes that try to tell us what we can and can't do. Drag is my way of saying, I'm going to live my life the way I want to. Reach Olivia Krauth at okrauth at couriergjournal.com and on Twitter at at Olivia Krauth. The next article is entitled, 
Half of California Freed from Drought Article by John Ansack Tremendous rains and snowfall since late last year have freed half of California from drought, but low groundwater levels remain a persistent problem, U.S. Drought Monitor data showed Thursday. The latest survey found that moderate or severe drought covers about 49% of the state. Nearly 17% of the state is free of drought or a condition described as abnormally dry. The remainder is still abnormally dry. Just three months ago, virtually all of California was in drought, including at extreme and exceptional levels. Water agencies serving millions of people, agriculture, and industry were told to expect only a fraction of requested allocations. The turnabout began with a series of atmospheric rivers that pounded the state from late December through mid-January, building a huge Sierra Nevada snowpack. After a few largely dry weeks, powerful storms returned in February. Water authorities began boosting allocations. The monitor shows three regions have received the most benefit from copious precipitation, including snowfall measured in feet rather than inches. The central Sierra and foothills are now free of drought or abnormal dryness for the first time since January 2020, the monitor said. The central coast from Monterey Bay to Los Angeles County is also now drought-free, along with two counties on the far north coast. The rain has improved California's soil moisture and stream flow levels, while the snow has increased mountain snowpack to much above normal levels, the monitor said. Most California reservoirs have refilled with water levels near or above average, but groundwater levels remain low and may take months to recover. The water content of the Sierra snowpack, which provides about a third of California's water, is more than 160% of the historical average on April 1st, when it is normally at its peak, according to the State Department of Water Resources. The U.S. Drought Monitor is a joint project of the National Drought Mitigation Center at the University of Nebraska at Lincoln, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, and the U.S. Department of Agriculture. The next article is called Wearable Whiskey, article by Kirby Adams. Walk into a rick house where bourbon barrels are aged or simply place your nose into a glass and take a whiff. That unmistakable scent of bourbon is what inspired Jackie Zykan, a professional bourbon blender and master taster for some of Kentucky's most notable brands, to create a line of wearable perfume scents based on the aromatic profile bourbon whiskey derives from the barrel. I can't begin to count the number of times people would walk into a barrel tasting and I would hear someone say, I wish I could just bottle that smell, Zykan told the Courier Journal. I'd think to myself, bourbon does smell amazing. Why can't we capture this? Meet ODU Oak, a bourbon-based line of eau de parfum. Adept at using her sense of taste to blend the amber liquid housed within oak barrels, Zykan was already ahead of the curve in developing her bourbon-based eau de parfum, ODU Oak, when it came to understanding bourbon's inherent notes of vanilla, spice, fruit, herb, florals, and more. 
brands will tell me what they want a product to taste like, and using the inventory, I go through and puzzle piece the flavor profile together, Zykan told the Courier-Journal. I was born with a really sensitive palate, and I've developed it further through years of practice. But developing a nose for blending perfume required Zykan to learn a different skill from her talent for tasting and blending whiskey. There's a much different technique that goes into building aromatics, she said. I started studying perfumery with a woman in California and started playing with the technique of using whiskey as the base with fragrance oils on top of that. How this bourbon master taster captures one moment in a bottle. As if wearing a perfume based on bourbon isn't enough fun, each of her eight bespoke scents is created from a moment when Zykan was personally drinking bourbon. Whether positive or negative, it doesn't matter. Some of them are super silly, Zykan said. I've taken in all the different elements of that experience and captured them into one moment in a bottle. Hand-produced in a spare room in her St. Matthew's home, the bourbon blender-turned-perfumer formulates each new blend using fragrance strips to test out scent blends. She drops the scented oil on a strip of paper and then weighs it under her nose like a fan to see how the different scents work together. Also important is whether or not the blend evokes the memory of the experience she's trying to recreate. The process has yielded winning formulations, including the number one seller, Walk of Shame. The unisex fragrances also include Love and Whiskey, Feral Gent, and Mint Julep, which Zykan says smells like someone you just ran into at the Kentucky Derby and you give them a big hug and feel the texture of their seersucker suit. It's the whole vibe. Another popular scent is Dice, which smells like a woman who dates younger, Zykan laughs. She's been around, if you know what I mean. You always know which wine glass is hers because her lipstick is smeared on the rim and she always needs a refill. Blue Jay is the scent of a man with a beard on a boat. Hiker trash embodies the aroma of the comfortable confidence of being pretty without makeup. Sun Moon Venus is the fragrance of the moment you truly realize your goals and your desires and have full permission to change whenever your heart says so. I'll start with an idea of whatever I want to capture, like I was on a hike and I ate an oatmeal cookie and there was a scent of a certain flower on the trail, Zykin said. I add the whiskey with the flavor profile that complements the fragrance combination and then it will need to sit from a couple of weeks to a couple of months as it all blends together. Where can you buy ODU Oak? For those who can't decide which fragrance speaks most to them, Zykan sells sampler boxes called the Roadie Set, which include a variety of four 3-milliliter roll-on bottles perfect for travel or to kick off your next adventure. These small bottles are definitely a conversation starter and perfect to toss into your purse or pocket for the Kentucky Oaks or Kentucky Derby held this year on May 6th at the iconic Churchill Downs racetrack. The ODU Oak full-size atomizer, 30 milliliters, or roll-on, 15 milliliters, are $40 and can be found online at oduoak.com or locally at dotfox at 56 
Bardstown Road, Revelry Boutique and Gallery, 742 East Market Street, Kentucky Peerless Distilling Company at 120 North 10th Street, at Forage, 1201 Goss Avenue, Fraser History Museum at 829 West Market Street, Never Say Die Bar at 3900 Shelbyville Road, and at Kentucky Derby Museum, 704 Central Avenue. Whether you dab or spritz a splash of Walk of Shame, Mint Julep, or Dice, a bottle of ODU Oak, Eau de Parfum, is like dousing yourself in bourbon, but with a way more interesting backstory. Creating a fragrance is very much like whiskey, because they're both a game of patience, Zykan said. Everyone has to hang out in the bottle or barrel for a period of time to get to know each other, and when it's done, I send it on its way. Reach Features Reporter Kirby Adams at kadams at couriergjournal.com. The next article is entitled, Born After 9-11, Homeland Security Marks 20 Years. Article by Rebecca Santana. A federal agency born in the aftermath of September 11, 2001, when the primary concern was stopping terrorists from entering the U.S., is changing to meet new challenges, said the Secretary of Homeland Security as he marked its 20-year anniversary during a ceremony Wednesday. Alejandro Mayorkas highlighted emerging threats such as cybersecurity attacks and lone offenders radicalized online, but the Department of Homeland Security is perhaps most in the spotlight for its role in the country's immigration debate. We have adapted and built capabilities to address the threats and challenges as they have evolved, Mayorkas told a crowd assembled at the agency's Washington headquarters. We were created 20 years ago in the largest restructuring of the federal government since World War II. Now we are a critical part of people's lives, interacting with the American people on a daily basis more than any other department or agency in the federal government. Hundreds of people from across the department, the third largest in the federal government with 260,000 employees, gathered to mark the occasion, among them the heads of some of the various agencies that make up DHS, including the Transportation Security Administration, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, and the Secret Service. Former President George W. Bush appeared in a video message as did the agency's first head, former Pennsylvania Governor Tom Ridge. President Joe Biden thanked DHS employees for their service, saying that because of them, the country is safer and stronger. We owe you, he said. The Department of Homeland Security was created in the aftermath of the September 11th terrorist attacks. It was compiled from 22 federal agencies or departments whose responsibilities ranged from Border Patrol agents on horseback to Federal Emergency Management Agency personnel inspecting damaged homes after hurricanes to Coast Guard personnel teaching boaters about marine safety. But in recent years, other issues have taken center stage at DHS, including immigration, cybersecurity, the rise of domestic extremism, and the coronavirus pandemic. Now it's time for today's obituaries. 
Beverly Ann Brown, 73, from Lebanon. Opal Lee Brown, 92, from Danville. Deborah E. Bird, 69, from Louisville. Ronald David Carroll, 80, from Louisville. Martha Frances Greenwood Cassidy, no age nor town shown. Charles Coulter, 78, from Bardstown. Ronald Way Dillander, 76, from Louisville, Kentucky. Connie Sue Drury, 75, from Lawrenceburg. George Richard Eberly, 74, from Louisville. John Daniel Eckert, 97, from Louisville. Timothy Embry, 58, from Campbellsville. Donald Ray Feltner, 89, from Richmond. Kenneth Lee Franklin, 86, from Louisville. Bill Goffinett, 83, from Tell City. Ralph Edward Goins, 79, from Louisville. Juanita Harpino, 75, from Troy. Timmy Lee Jecker, 57, from Louisville. Georgia Marlene Cloud King, 87, from Hanover. Thomas Lambert, 79, from Hardinsburg, Indiana. Edward M. McAfee, Sr., 83, from Hardinsburg. Sister Regina McCarthy, 86, from St. Catherine. Dennis Ray McLemore, 71, from New Albany. Nora Minor, 18, from Elizabethtown. Jenny Puckett, 71, from Elizabethtown. Kathy Benham Settles, 74, from Springfield. Ruby May Terrence, 101, from Bremen. Linda Luce Combs Tincher, 75, from Frankfurt. Jakari DeAnthony Turner, 16, from Lebanon. Paul Wright, 82, no town shown. Raymond Jordan Wright, Jr., 65, from Eminence. If you'd like further information about any of the listings today, call us during the weekdays at 859-422-6390, and we'll be glad to read the entire item to you. From the Metro section, our first article today is entitled, Jefferson County May See Potent Storm. Wind gusts in area could reach as high as 60 miles per hour. Article by Ray Johnson. The National Weather Service has issued a wind advisory for Jefferson County from 7 a.m. Friday until 1 a.m. Saturday. Surrounding counties in central Kentucky and all of southern Indiana are also affected by the advisory, the Weather Service said. A potent weather system could make non-thunderstorm wind gusts of 45 to 55 miles per hour. The highest chance for severe weather occurs Friday morning after sunrise until mid-afternoon. Isolated gusts could reach up to 60 miles per hour. Some parts of eastern Kentucky are also under a high wind watch, in effect from Friday morning to late Friday night, the Weather Service said. A flood watch has also been issued for Jefferson County until Friday afternoon. Parts of western Kentucky along the Bluegrass Parkways are also affected through Friday morning. The Weather Service predicts multiple waves of thunderstorms and showers across the state until Friday afternoon. 
Flooding is possible where training of heavy showers and storms occurs. Louisville is likely to get two to three inches of rain. An isolated tornado, tornado cannot be ruled out either, the Weather Service said. Contact reporter Ray Johnson at rnjohnson at gannett.com or follow them on Twitter at at rayj-33. The next article is entitled, Iconic Pavilion Avoids Raising. Cherokee Park Site Gets Reprieve from Committee. Article by Matthew Glowicki. The iconic Hogan's Fountain Pavilion in Cherokee Park was granted a lifeline Wednesday when a city committee voted against demolishing the deteriorating structure. Louisville Metro's Parks and Recreation Department had sought to tear down the 1965 structure, which it argued is too structurally unsound to remain standing and too costly to repair. But after nearly two hours of presentations and public comment, the city's Individual Landmarks Architectural Review Committee voted 4-1 to one to deny the request. Because the pavilion was designed a local landmark in 2012, additional protections required demolition to be weighed by that committee. Its members said they respected the structure's historic and sentimental value and were encouraged by a preliminary analysis from a structural engineer showing options to save the pavilion, though he ultimately concluded such work wouldn't be economical or preserve its architectural design. It's clearly become beloved, said committee member Ashlyn Ackerman. I think there's a way to save this. Another member, Daniel Preston, said he didn't want to vote to approve demolition when an alternate plan involving steel reinforcement was being presented and could be further explored. Public comment Wednesday was nearly entirely against the demolition, with speakers highlighting personal memories tied to the space and praising it for its unique mid-century modern aesthetics. The sole vote in favor of demolition was Robert Kirchdorfer, director of Louisville's Codes and Regulations Department, who said while the structure is also special to him, it was on the verge of being in imminent danger, as evidenced by its measurable movement and rotting. Kirchdorfer told the Courier-Journal the fencing around the structure, installed in May to keep the public a safe distance away, is one reason why his department hasn't deemed it an imminent threat. But that determination could be made any time, depending on the state of the structure, and a subsequent emergency demolition order would trump the committee's vote. Jason Canuel, assistant director of Metro Parks and Recreation, said no decision has been made about whether to appeal. That call would be made by Parks Department leadership in consultation with the mayor's office, he said. The Parks Department can appeal in one of two ways. It can submit a procedural appeal to the Landmarks Commission, which would review the lower court's finding for error, or pursue an economic hardship exemption, through which the city would need to show that not allowing the demolition would deny the city any reasonable beneficial use or any reasonable return on the property. The 62-foot pavilion poses an imminent threat to public safety. 
he said. The pavilion closed to the public in May after a report from a citizen and subsequent inspection led to discovery of rotting on the eight wooden arches that make up the cone-shaped structure. Wood rot has been a problem before. The structure underwent a series of repairs in 1979, 1983, and 1989 to wrap the wooden beams in steel support sheaths. Over the past nine months, structural engineers found severe deterioration throughout the beams with wood so rotted that it was soft to the touch and in some spots non-existent. One side has also shifted inches downward while the opposite side has moved upward in response. A three-inch movement seen in May is now around five inches, said Jason Burkett, a structural engineer with consulting firm Tetra Tech. One thing that's apparent to us is the structure's moving, he said. It is not sitting static. Canuel closed his presentation Wednesday by opining the pavilion poses an imminent threat to public safety repeating figures he gave in November at a Metro Council Parks and Sustainability Committee meeting. Canuel said report, report costs ranged from $900,000 to $1.3 million, while demolition would cost $56,000. In an interview, Canuel noted the budget ordinance approved in December allocated $100,000 for shoring or de demolition of the structure down from $1. million in budget surplus funds originally proposed for repairs. Why is there a teepee in Cherokee Park? Sitting atop Bonnie Castle Hill in Cherokee Park, the pavilion is named for the nearby Hogan's Fountain, though its shape has inspired other names, including teepee and witch's hat. The structure was commissioned in 1964 and built the following year at the beloved public park, designed by acclaimed landscape architect Federal Law Olmsted in the late 1800s. The pavilion's designer wanted to honor the park's namesake by using natural materials and modeling the structure after a teepee, a conical dwelling used by Native Americans of the Great Plains. The Cherokee Nation, however, notes on its website that Cherokees aren't believed to have lived in teepees. Rather, they transitioned from cave dwelling to wattle and daub houses through the 1700s and 1800s, and by 1800s were living in log cabins. In 2010, the pavilion faced an uncertain future when the city and Olmsted Parks Conservancy issued its master plan for the Hogan's Fountain area. It concluded the structure wasn't in keeping with Olmsted's vision for the park and should be replaced with two smaller shelters. A preservation group formed to push back, and the city agreed to not raise the structure if the group could raise enough money to restore it. The group raised more than $70,000 for roof and other repairs, including $10,000 from the family of the pavilion's architect, E.J. Shickley, Jr., the Courier-Journal previously reported. Multiple speakers referenced that history at Wednesday's hearing, questioning if the Parks Department would seriously explore ways to preserve what they view as an iconic gem of Louisville's park system.
Canuel previously told a Metro Council committee that a replacement pavilion would likely be smaller and structurally similar to the nearby Stegner Pavilion, built in 2018 for $375,000. He noted 2023 costs would likely be closer to $500,000. He said that the master plan is a non-definitive guide now more than a decade old. A replacement structure has not been identified, he said, and any new structure would likely involve public input. Business reporter Matthew Glowicki can be reached at mglowicki at courier-journal.com, 502-582-4000, or on Twitter at Matt Glow. The next article is entitled, Thunder Over Louisville Takes Look Into Its Past. Theme pays tribute to fans' favorite memories. Article by Kirby Adams. The Kentucky Derby Festival has announced the theme for this year's fireworks and air show, which will be held on April 22nd at Louisville's Waterfront Park. Through the Decades will be the theme of the 2023 Thunder Over Louisville, one of the largest annual fireworks shows and top air shows in North America. We've all become a little more nostalgic over the last few years because of those special events we have missed, and now we have an even greater appreciation for those traditions, Matt Gibson, Kentucky Derby Festival President and CEO, said. We wanted the theme for this year's show to pay tribute to those favorite Thunder memories our festival fans have experienced across the decades. While fireworks have played a role in the Kentucky Derby Festival since the 1960s, the spark of the idea to create a pyrotechnic spectacular launched in 1991 when the first thunder was held downtown over the Ohio River. With less than two months until this huge community event is set to take place, here are the details you'll want to know when planning your Thunder Over Louisville experience. When is Thunder Over Louisville 2023? People will start to gather at Waterfront Park's North Great Lawn as early as 9 a.m. on April 22nd. The Chow Wagon and more than 100 food and drink vendors and fun family activities kick off by 11 a.m. The massive air show gets underway around 3 p.m. and will continue to light, delight fans until dusk. The fireworks show begins at 9.30 p.m. and lasts until 10 p.m. Where is Thunder Over Louisville 2023? Public viewing areas stretch from 8th Street to Clay Street north of Main Street in Kentucky and along Riverside Drive from Ashland Park in Clarksville to Spring Street in Jeffersonville, Indiana, according to KDF.org. The Chow Wagon and Waterfront Park and North Great Lawn at Waterfront Park offer front row seats to the show. What time are the fireworks for Thunder Over Louisville? Once the sun sets, the artistry of Zambelli fireworks and the production of visual presentations take over the sky above the Ohio River for a fireworks and music spectacular that runs from about 9.30 p.m. to 10 p.m. The secret with Thunder has been to pack as much firepower into 28 minutes as possible and produce a series of finales, Wayne Hedinger, 
show producer and owner of Visual Presentations, previously told the Courier-Journal. Hedinger has it down to a science, working with the team from Zambelli to create a heart-stopping, eye-popping show. What's the theme for Thunder Over Louisville 2023? This year's theme is inspired by the early years of Thunder Over Louisville and how much the show has grown over the decades. Thunder draws thousands of fans spanning all ages and generations who come together to celebrate on the waterfront and, through the decades, is meant to invoke feelings of nostalgia for this long-running Kentucky Derby Festival springtime tradition. Where is the best place to watch Thunder Over Louisville? People always ask, where's the best seat at Thunder, said Hedinger. I say it's anywhere that you can see the 2nd Street Bridge. The bridge is going to be very busy this year with more bright and brilliant colors because Zambelli is now getting a lot of its fireworks from Spain, and they produce fireworks with amazing colors. What do I need to know about Thunder Over Louisville Air Show? The 2023 Air Show begins at 3 p.m. on April 22nd at Waterfront Park. The festival is planning another packed air show lineup this year, featuring both military and civilian aircraft. Highlights include the Air Force F-35 demo and Heritage Flight, Navy F-35 demo and Growler demo with Legacy Flight, U.S. Army Golden Knights, Matt Yunkin's Magic by Moonlight performance, as well as numerous warbirds taking to the skies, including the P-51 Mustang, the F-86 Sabre, the F-4U Corsair, and the F-8F Bearcat. More details about the 2023 Thunder Air Show will be released closer to the event date. Will there be a drone show at Thunder Over Louisville? You bet there will be a drone show. The third annual drone show, powered by LG&E, is another highlight of the 2023 show and will light up the nighttime sky with a variety of unique designs just before the fireworks begin. Is there a new location for the Meyer Family Fun Zone? This year, the Meyer Family Fun Zone returns to a new location at the Big Four Bridge at 1101 River Road and offers a prime viewing space filled with family activities. How do I get to Thunder Over Louisville? As part of its partnership to make the Kentucky Derby Festival accessible to the entire community, Humana will once again be sponsoring free rides to Thunder Over Louisville in partnership with TARC. More information on the Free Fair Day will be released in the coming weeks. How can I watch or listen to Thunder Over Louisville at home? Thunder Over Louisville's 2023 official broadcast partners are Wave Television and Mix 106.9 Radio. Who sponsors Thunder Over Louisville? Caesars Southern Indiana, Humana, LG&E, Meyer, and UPS are back again in 2023 as presenting sponsors of Thunder Over Louisville. We are especially grateful for the generosity of our sponsors who come back year after year to allow us to produce this one-of-a-kind event and bring our city together to kick off the Derby Festival season, Gibson said. 
In addition to the presenting sponsors, Akima is the Military Zone sponsor, and the official hotel is the Galt House Hotel. 1020 Craft Brewery is the official craft beer, and High Noon is the official seltzer of Thunder Over Louisville. Reach Features Reporter Kirby Adams at kadams at courier-journal.com. The next article is entitled, Long Lost Ship Found in Lake Huron. Discovery Confirms Tragic Story of Vessel's Fate After Sinking in 1894. Article by John Flesher. Even for Thunder Bay area, a perilous swath of northern Lake Huron off the Michigan coast that has devoured many a ship, the Ironton's fate seems particularly cruel. The 191-foot cargo vessel collided with a grain hauler on a blustery night in September 1894, sinking both. The Ironton's captain and six sailors clambered into a lifeboat, but it was dragged to the bottom before they could detach it from the ship. Only two crewmen survived. The gravesite long eluded shipwreck hunters. Now, the mystery has been solved, officials with Thunder Bay National Marine Sanctuary in Alpena, Michigan, said Wednesday. The Associated Press obtained details of the discovery ahead of the announcement. A team of historians, underwater archaeologists, and technicians located the wreckage in 2019 and deployed remotely controlled cameras to scan and document it, Superintendent Jeff Gray said in an AP interview. The sanctuary plans to reveal the location in coming months and is considering placing a mooring buoy at the site. Officials have kept the find secret to prevent divers from disturbing the site before video and photo documentation is finished. Video footage shows the Ironton sitting upright on the lake bottom hundreds of feet down remarkably preserved by the cold, fresh water, like many other Great Lakes shipwrecks, Cray said. No human remains were seen, but the lifeboat remains tethered to the bigger vessel, a poignant confirmation of witness accounts from 128 years ago. Archaeologists study things to learn about the past, but it's not really things that we're studying. It's people, Gray said, and that lifeboat really connects you to the site and reminds you of how powerful the lakes are and what it must have been like to work on them and lose people on them. The search and inspections involved a number of organizations, including Ocean Exploration Trust, founded by Robert Ballard, who located the sunken wreckage of the Titanic and the German battleship Bismarck. We hope this discovery helps contribute to an element of closure to the extended families of those lost on the Ironton and the communities impacted by its loss, Ballard said. The Ironton is yet another piece of the puzzle of Alpena's fascinating place in America's history of trade, while the Thunder Bay Sanctuary continues to reveal lost chapters of maritime history. Nearly 200 shipwrecks are believed to rest within or nearby the boundaries of the sanctuary, which includes the Great Lakes Maritime Heritage Center in Alpena and some 4,300 square miles of northwest Lake Huron. Several factors made the area a shipwreck alley for more than two centuries until modern navigation and weather forecasting reduced the danger, 
said Stephanie Gandula, the sanctuary's resource protection coordinator. The late 1800s was a busy period for Great Lakes commerce. Thousands of schooners or sailing ships and hundreds of steamers hauled cargo and passengers between bustling port cities such as Chicago, Detroit, and Cleveland. The weather was notoriously unstable. Dense fog, sudden storms, islands, and submerged reefs lurked. On the fateful night, the Ironton and another schooner barge, the Moonlight, were being towed northward from the Lake Erie town of Astabula, Ohio, by a steam-powered ship, a common practice then, much as a train engine pulls freight cars on a railroad. They were bound for Marquette, a port city on Lake Superior. The steamer broke down in heavy Lake Huron seas around 12.30 a.m. the morning of September 26. The Ironton and the Moonlight disconnected their tow lines and drifted apart, with the Ironton crew setting sails and firing up its engine. It veered off course and ran into the Ohio, a freighter loaded with 1,000 tons of flour, about 10 miles off Presque Isle, Michigan. The Ohio soon foundered, its crew of 16 rescued by the moonlight. The Ironton stayed afloat more than an hour before going down. The next article is entitled, Biden Plans to Bolster Cybersecurity, article by Eric Tucker. The U.S. government plans to expand minimum cybersecurity requirements for critical sectors and to be faster and more aggressive in preventing cyber attacks before they can occur, including by using military, law enforcement, and diplomatic tools, according to a Biden administration strategy document released Thursday. The Democratic administration also intends to work with Congress on legislation that would impose legal liability on software makers whose products fail to meet basic cybersecurity safeguards, officials said. The strategy largely codifies work that has already been underway during the last two years over a spate of high-profile ransomware attacks on critical infrastructure. An attack on a major fuel pipeline that caused panic at the pump and resulted in an East Coast fuel shortage, as well as other attacks, focused fresh attention on cybersecurity. But officials hope the new strategy lays the groundwork for countering an increasingly challenging cyber environment. This strategy will position the United States and its allies and partners to build that digital ecosystem together, making it more easily and inherently defensible, resilient, and aligned with our values, the document states. President Joe Biden's administration has already taken steps to impose cybersecurity regulations on certain critical industry sectors, such as electric utilities and nuclear facilities, and the strategy calls for minimum requirements to be expanded to other vital sectors. Anne Neuberger, the administration's deputy national security advisor for cyber and emerging technology, said on a conference call with reporters that it was critical that the American people have confidence in the availability and resiliency of our critical infrastructure and the essential services it provides. The administration also wants to shift legal liability onto software makers that fail to take basic precautions to produce secure technology, saying companies should be held accountable rather than end users. 
In a statement accompanying the document, Biden says his administration is taking on the systemic challenge that too much of the responsibility for cybersecurity has fallen on individual users and small organizations. By working in partnership with industry, civil society, and state, local, tribal, and territorial governments, we will rebalance the responsibility for cybersecurity to be more effective and equitable, Biden says. The strategy document calls for more aggressive efforts to thwart cyber attacks before they can occur by drawing on a range of military, law enforcement, and diplomatic tools, as well as help from a private sector that has growing visibility into the adversary sector. Such offensive operations, the document says, need to take place with greater speed, scale, and frequency. Our goal is to make malicious actors incapable of mounting sustained cyber-enabled campaigns that would threaten the national security or public safety of the United States, the strategy document says. The next article is entitled, Russian Envoy, Nuclear Powers Could Collide, article by Jamie Keaton. A senior Russian diplomat warned Thursday that increasing Western support for Ukraine could trigger an open conflict between nuclear powers. Speaking at the UN Conference on Disarmament, Russian Deputy Foreign Minister Sergei Rykobov denounced the U.S. and its allies for openly declaring the goal of defeating Russia in a hybrid war, arguing that it violates their obligations under international agreements and is fraught with the war in Ukraine spilling out of control. Rybkov warned that the U.S. and NATO policy of fueling the conflict in Ukraine and their increasing involvement in the military confrontation is fraught with a direct military clash of nuclear powers with catastrophic consequences. He emphasized that Russian President Vladimir Putin's move to suspend the 2010 New START Treaty, the last remaining nuclear arms pact with the U.S., came in response to the U.S. and NATO action on Ukraine. We can't stand idle, Rybkov said, noting if the U.S. conducts a nuclear test, we will be forced to respond. This concludes selections from the Courier-Journal for Friday, March 3, 2023. Your reader has been Greg Davis. We invite you to stay tuned for continued programming on Radio I. From everyone at Radio I, we thank you for listening and wish you a very good day.